You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Uh, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Claudia Golden, who is a professor of economics, but of course you're also an historian, <laughs> and also the author of, of many books, a couple of them, Women Working Longer, Race Between Education and Technology, The Defining Moment, Understanding the Gender Gap, and of course, most recently, this book right here, Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Towards Equity. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you very, very much. And the book is out in paper, and the paper, the cover for the paper edition is very different because publishers think that they have to have things that are are really simple and, and really flashy so that the cover is not artistic. It's just flashy. <laughs> well, I think it doesn't need to be flashy on the surface because it really is fascinating on, on the inside. And well, that's really, really good. Unfortunately, when people walk into a bookstore, they don't see the inside until they take the book that's flashy and open it up. Cambridge might be one of the few places where people still actually do go into to bookstores, right? I, I think bookstores are big in many, many different places. Uh, then again, maybe I only go to college towns because I was just thinking that I was in Hanover recently and we went into a bookstore and we thought, wow, what a great experience. We can open things up. Right. Well, you know, the thing about this book is that it really ties together a lot of the different threads that you've been working on your entire life, right? You've been working on labor markets. You've been working on gender gap. You've been working on education. You've been working on technology. And I think it all kind of comes together in this book. And in this book, you use a little bit of economic theory. You delve into all of these different data sources. And I think you're trying to answer this fundamental question, which is why do we have this gap in income between males and females in the United States? And in order to kind of set the stage to answer that question, you go way back in time over a hundred years ago and trace how this has evolved. And you talk about five different generations, and I guess we're kind of in the fifth generation. And I love how you set it up where you said that the first group had to choose either career or family. And then the second group was typically going to do job and then family. These are sort of the prototypical sequences. The third was family, then job. The fourth was career, then family. And you make a distinction between jobs and, and careers. And now, of course, we live in the era where everybody wants to have it all, right? <laughs> to have a, a wonderful career and a family. And you limit it really, I mean, the book, it took me uh, a couple pages for me to figure this out. You're really focusing on college graduates, right? And of course, college graduates, female college graduates, they were much smaller in number in the earlier periods than they are now. And the other thing that I found fascinating is that the number, the ratio of male and female college graduates was the beginning of this time period, relatively equal compared, you know, and like it is now. And it was really this temporary blip that was due to the GI bill that led to this massive disparity between male and female college graduation rates. So do you want me to respond? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't even have a question in there. <laughs> I don't know where my question was. You know, you don't have a question, but I, I know from your writing that you are big into elevator pitches. 
And you just gave the most amazing pitch for my book, but we would have reached beyond the top floor of the Empire State Building. That's right. So, Well, our, luckily, my listeners have patience. So let me just add a couple of things to the elevator pitch, which is that the reason that the book was written in the way it was is it really splices, as you said, two separate parts of my work the historical work that reaches way back and the work that begins sort of yesterday that says, if women are doing so well, if they are graduating from college, not equal to men, but actually greatly, greatly exceeding, if they are going to law school at about the same rate, if they're getting MDs at about the same rate, why do even they look as if they've been sideswiped? Okay, in terms of their earnings and in terms of their promotions, in terms of what they would consider their careers. Why do they look like they've been sideswiped? And the reason that I married these two is because every generation says there's something to matter. You know, if you think that you are in a generation in which everything is perfectly fine and there is no change that's occurred, you feel as if you've been sort of left out. So every individual believes that they're in a moment of enormous change or enormous problems. And what I wanted to show, and that's what much of the book is about, is that, in fact, there's been enormous progress and that we don't know that. We, we stand at a juncture and we say something is the matter without looking back and saying, it's not that bad as it once was, or this is where we came from. These are the, this, this is the journey that we have taken. And these are the reasons why there has been changed. So the first thing that I want this book to say is there has been a lot of progress. And the second thing is, but we're not there. Right. And it seems like the progress is one that is continuous, right? So I think some people might think that the progress is up and down, but you highlight how even in the 1950s, where I think the popular perception is that all educated women were living these sterile lives as housewives, right? And that's sort of the myth of the feminine mystique. You highlight that when you look at the data, right, it seems like, you know, women were working at higher rates. They were creating career paths for themselves. It's just that they were marrying younger and having children younger. So why is it that we maybe fail to recognize this progress, this continuous progress? I think that it's true. We've just met everything that we think about, that we don't look back and say we have seen progress. And I think that there's an interesting mindset why that's the case. If we say, oh, everything is fine because we've progressed up this hill, we don't realize that there's still a top to the hill that we still must climb together. I think that that's the reason. I don't put any blame on anyone for it. And of course, the other thing, which you will know uh, better than anyone, is that history isn't studied by everyone. <laughs> it's difficult. History is messy. And so we don't want to study history because we have to come to grips with lots of moments when we took the possibly wrong path, or we have to, 
you know, master a tremendous amount of facts that we don't want to. We want to live in the present. The question that I get the most is, what is the future going to look like? And my answer is always, that's why I'm a historian, because I don't predict the future, but I can backcast. And that's hard as well going back in time and understanding how we got to hear from there is just as hard. But, you know, what economists are really good at is showing how an aggregate outcome comes about as a result of individual choices made under constraints, right? With preferences and norms. And I think that's really what you do with the book. And you try to disentangle what are the shifts in preferences, what are the shifts in opportunity costs, and what are the shifts in constraints. And at the very beginning, of course, you talk about some of the legal restrictions against women working in different careers, most of which, of course, have been eliminated, including these marriage bans and these nepotism bans. And I was wondering if you could talk about them because I wasn't really clear on why we had them, right? I mean, yes, social norms, but as an economic historian, I'm always looking for who's benefiting from this, right? Clearly, the incumbent workers want to keep out the uh, new entrants. But why, particularly in, say, the teaching professions where you, know, you needed to have these women working, why would they have these marriage bans? Because you guys were a problem. Okay, so think about, so we had in 1920, when we first can count them, 120,000 or more school districts. Some of them were very large. And some of them were becoming unified, like New York City and Los Angeles and Chicago. But most of them were these tiny little places. Okay, think Little House on the Prairie. Go back to that. And so it was pretty easy to attract young people, women, to be teachers. And when they got married, two things happened. Okay. The first thing is that in these pretty small districts, you now had someone who was going to argue with the school board and be the agent for the teacher. That's her husband. She was uh, docile. She was young and docile, and now she has an individual who's going to advocate for her and advocate for her for higher wages and better conditions. How about that stove in a little schoolhouse that wasn't operating well in the winter time? Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is that she's going to become pregnant pretty quickly. So you can think about marriage bans originating with the fact that these school districts didn't find it very difficult to attract teachers. And let me just say that when they did, they relaxed them. And these were often not even sort of written down in ways that we can even find them today. So being a historian and trying to track these marriage bars is a, a difficult process. So the first thing is that, that when the supply was pretty elastic, these school districts had these bans. And they said, we're going to fire you when you get married, and we're not going to hire you if you are married. And it was very easy for them to do, number one. Number two, they probably were going to get rid of this teacher anyhow when she became pregnant. 
And if they didn't get rid of her, she was going to get rid of herself. Okay. But whenever we see historically a problem with supply, these marriage bars and these marriage bans go away very quickly. Right. So it was in, I think, World War II when the demand for female labor right, became quite strong that a lot of these fell away. I was surprised to, to see a that. A lot of these fell away. But remember that, remember I said that history is messy. Well, the period of World War II was preceded uh, by the Great Depression, 10 years, so that even in 1940, unemployment rates were extremely high, okay? So when unemployment rates are high, the first people to be told that, you know, we don't want to hire you are going to be, let's face it, various minority groups, including women. Yeah. I was surprised to see that there were these marriage bans persisted in some professions like uh, flight attendants, right? And it was only after <laughs> they wanted to start hiring married male flight attendants that they were forced to get rid of these. Right. That's a very famous Supreme Court decision. I mean, it's a very funny one because I think it was Delta made the mistake. So there was always an out in terms of discrimination law if you had a bona fide occupational qualification, okay? And so what the airlines did was said, oh, there's a BFOQ to hire women in these, in these positions and to also hire single women in these positions. And then they went and they hired, in the Honolulu run, they hired a group of, quote, Native Hawaiian men for, believe it or not, they actually said for color, which they didn't mean the shade of the person's skin, but for to create a festive atmosphere. And the Supreme Court then, of course, said, look, this is no longer a BFOQ. You just hired men. And so they sort of outlawed a whole bunch of things having to do with the airlines hiring only women, only uh, single women, only attractive, only of certain weight and height and et cetera, as long as it wasn't considered a BFOQ. Now, when you talk about kind of the trade-offs between career and family, I mean, really what you're talking about are the trade-offs between a career outside of the household and kind of a career in, inside of the household. But no, no one ever talks about household work as a career. And certainly in the aggregate economic data, right, we don't include domestic work as part of you know, GDP. Why is that? Why do we not recognize being a head of house or domestic, head of domestic household or housewife as a, a profession, as a career, as an occupation? Well, why is it that we prioritize working for money or working outside of the household? Uh, once again, because it's messy. The person who pioneered national income accounting, you know, one of the most boring fields you can ever imagine. And he himself found it boring. He wanted to get out of that business. And I'm referring to the great Nobel laureate, Simon Kuznets. Okay. He, he eventually got out of that business, although he won the Nobel Prize for that and went into the field of economic growth and economic development. He and many others would say that we should include it. But it, there are lots of things that we should include. There are lots of ways in which we bias our estimates of national income because of it. Think of the following. Every time 
I bake a, a loaf of bread versus buy a loaf of bread, I'm reducing gross national product. And that's because just the labor itself is not being included. Okay, let's forget about the economies of scale. And let's forget about the fact that I'm not going to bake bread and you wouldn't want to eat it. And as historians, as economic historians, this is really big. I mean, it's extremely big when the sewing machine comes in and clothes are being produced. And that this is a, a big sector of the economy are being produced in factories rather than at home. They're still being produced at home, but they're being produced more in factories now, where buys the national income. It's not just washing pots and pans. It's not just taking care of the kids. It's a whole bunch of other things. And it's not as if we shouldn't include them, because in fact, Kuznets and his student, Bob Gorman, who is another University of Pennsylvania person, and of course, Simon was a University of Pennsylvania person. I know that, that Greg is University of Pennsylvania. They attempted to include and did include many of these items in their estimates of gross national product. But to do that for this larger sector, which is all household production and the care of children, the care of elderly, et cetera, is just a monumental task. And it's a monumental task simply in terms of the theory about how to do it, let alone the data. But it's, it's not as if it shouldn't be done. Well, you, know, you talk a bit about sort of technological shocks throughout this period. And at the beginning of the period, I mean, the household work changed dramatically because of the introduction of electrification and appliances. And so that kind of freed up supply. But also on the demand side, you talked about this white collar revolution, right? And this surge in demand for clerical work, which led to expansion of high schools and sucked a lot of women into the workforce, right? Because I spent some time, my father in Philadelphia worked at a clothing company and there was a factory that I spent some time working in as a kid. And of course, most of the people who worked in this factory were women and most of them were married women. And so there was a lot of female labor participation in the sort of non-college educated. So how did these technological shifts seem to have affected the college educated at a higher rate. Yeah, but, but Greg, if we go, if we use the census, if we use all the documents that we could pull together, yes, there are women working in factories and those women will report that they're operatives and I can code them. But at the end of the day, uh, the labor force participation for white women, even those who are immigrants, even those with immigrant parents, is extremely low in 1900 and 1910, and it's beginning to climb in about 20 and 30, but it's still extremely low. For Black women, it's higher for lots of different reasons. Right. And then fast forward to the 70s, and you talk about this quiet revolution. So what's the difference? I mean, we hear about a lot of activism, right? Feminist activism, which was driving a lot of the changes. The quiet revolution was sort of happening in the background, driven by economic forces, right? Yeah, well, it's also driven by the pill. Yeah. So, the, in fact, the change from what I call group three to group four that said, and so group three said, well, we're going to have family first and then a job, and I'm going to plan for that. And then group four suddenly almost without warning, 
around the late 60s, early 70s says, nope, and this is college women, nope, I'm going to have a career. I'm going to cement that. And then I'm going to have family because after all, having family is really simple. Let's look at the baby boom. No one had any trouble producing three children, so I'm not going to have any problem. I'm going to delay having family. I'm going to delay marriage. And the Pell was a mighty force in allowing society to accept the fact that later marriage and an active sex life were perfectly fine together. And we fast forward to the present. And I think a lot of the book, probably the entire second half of the book is really focused on the gender wage gap. And, you know, we all talk about 81 cents, right? I think that's the number that we all talk about now. And increase it to 83. 83 cents. And I think many of us see this as a problem and we're all kind of fishing around for explanations. And you walk through some of the explanations that most people immediately think of and you highlight how, you know, a lot of them are inadequate to explain these differences. Even I think the one that a lot of economic folks would point to, which is uh, occupational segregation. And you highlight how even if we were to reassign the male and female employees into sort of identical occupations, we would still have this substantial gap because there's lots of heterogeneity. There's still male-female gaps within these different professions. And you say this is driven primarily by greedy jobs. So tell us what, what exactly is a greedy job? Yeah, so let, let's walk through this because it is the case that men and women, black and white, we have many, many different ways of slicing the society and the labor force up, are often in different jobs in different sectors. And it is also the case that the way in which the ELS produces this number of the uh, gender gap, the average gender gap, it's about 83 cents on the dollar. But if we just peer into a single sector, let's say the finance sector, investment banking, HR, if we peer into that through the lens of taking everyone who earned an MBA from a particular school, so we're holding a lot of things constant, we will see that men and women exit this prestigious MBA school with their MBAs, and they earn about the same. And then after about 10 to 15 years, women don't earn 83 cents on the male dollar. They earn about 56 cents on the male dollar, okay? So in fact, in occupations that are those that we think of as the most prestigious in which earnings are the highest, in fact, women earn much, much less relative to the male dollar after some period. Now, I can also do that little experiment with women who have children over that period or don't have children. So I can sort of shock them with a kid. And we would see that it's really the child, the family responsibilities that lead to these large differences. So women who through that period haven't had children or haven't had family responsibilities, perhaps with elderly parents, earn 
uh, more or less about the same as what their male colleagues are earning, those peers with whom they left this prestigious business school. And so then we ask, what's going on? Well, this set of occupations are very greedy occupations, and children take time. And so if you have an MBA and you're thinking about going into a particular one of these uh, occupations in this sector, and you know that you cannot commit to traveling every other weekend, you're not going to be doing M&As, for example, because you know that prior to the pandemic, and we should discuss that, that you're going to have to travel. And so the greedy jobs are the ones that pay the most for additional hours for maybe not even additional hours, but your weekends, your vacations that demand that you be on the road, that you be up in the air. And so those are the ones that women disproportionately and for reasons that have to do with social norms can't take. And so therefore, in different sex couples, there is a decision that we're not going to have couple equity we're going to take, I'm going to take the flexible job and you're going to take the greedy job. And so by removing the fact that we no longer have couple equity, we throw gender equity under the bus. And so that's really the story. So it's really not a gender gap as much as it is a motherhood gap, right? Because the, the women that choose to start a family that are driving these differences over time, right? By and large, I mean, there's still a gender effect and some of the gender effect may be because they're also parents and we know that daughters take care of their parents personally more than sons do, who often take care of their parents by writing large checks. And in addition, there's still a gender gap even without this. And part of it is because women may believe that they're going to step into these roles and at the end of the day don't. So there are also the issues of expectational norms as well. So it's really a consequence of household level decision-making then, right? So there's at the household level, the choice to pursue that extra income can only happen as the price you have to pay is that you sacrifice gender equity within the household? Right. I mean, one could just think about, as I do in the book, I have a couple modeled after a real couple who sit down and they realize that they've they've both taken jobs that are high-powered jobs. They now have a child and something's got to give. And so they think, well, we can both take the flexible job and have couple equity Uh, And also that also adds to gender equality in the entire economy. But if we did that, we'd be leaving how many tens of thousands of dollars on the table. And so they look at that and they think, you know, we really want a 50-50 life, but is it worth that amount of money? And so what this tells us is that if we could close that amount, then given that couples want gender equity, they will purchase it if it's cheaper. But if work is greedy, then 
purchasing it is very expensive. So one of the other interesting things that you point out is that these greedy jobs, these are ones where you also have wide disparities in income within males, right? So these are the lack of equity between males and females. You also see this kind of within the males, right? So whether it's finance or law or medicine or even academia to some extent, these are greedy jobs. And I think I thought what was interesting about your explanation of these types of work is that when you work more hours, you get more as an hourly compensation, right? So these are jobs that really reward folks who not only are willing to work extremely long hours, but who are willing to tolerate the uncertainty around which hours they have to work. And I'm thinking in terms of like management consulting, I have a friend of mine who is visiting this past weekend and she works in you know, one of the top management consulting firms and her work schedule is just crazy, you know, and she's in her mid to late thirties and there's just no way that she could raise a family with this kind of work schedule. Yeah. And what we left out of this is that she might not be able to raise a family, but there are in her firm, my guess is that 90% of the men with whom she works have kids and their kids are 16 years old. And probably these guys will regret not, you know, tutoring their kid in algebra, not even seeing their kid take their first step or saying daddy for the first time. So it's not simply that women disproportionately give up having careers of that type, but men disproportionately give up the joys and the happiness of seeing their kids grow up. So why don't we talk about the gender wage gap? Why don't we talk about the gender get to spend time with your kids gap? Because <laughs> that, that would seem to be the uh, flip side of this, right? Right. And every now and then I'll see some, there is an ad for a bank and I forget which one it is. It could be Deutsche Bank. But the promo for the bank is really telling or financial advising. It shows a man hugging his child and saying something about, you should feel more secure in your wealth so that you can spend more time with your kids. So there, there is some sense that this is a concern, but I don't see a lot of it. Okay. And so my eyes are always peeled for the ads and for the uh, survey information about just how much men feel regret. So there, there are Pew surveys, I think I report them, about the regret that men feel that they don't spend enough time with their kids. And so this is an issue. And, and of course, many of these issues came to the fore during the pandemic, and particularly for the group of more educated individuals who had the opportunity and the ability to work at home. So conceivably, we could, I mean, that household could have made different decisions where the woman of the household could have decided to pursue this greedy career, and the man could have chosen to be available, more available for the, the children. 
but we we very rarely see that. Now, I think economists sometimes talk about preferences and sometimes we talk about social norms. And I think we, we talk, we call them social norms when we think that they're you know, more malleable. We talk about preferences when we just no, say, I, I think we incorrectly use the word norms. Yeah. Okay. We're not used the correct way. So what's the difference? How do economists use these different words? I don't care how economists use them. I only care how I use them. Okay. So a norm, it's required for a norm that there be a set of arbiters outside that, 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 care about the norms and go like this when you're not following the norms, okay? And when those people go away, then you can do whatever you want. Norms require that there be an enforcer, an arbiter, okay? Beliefs are different. Beliefs are things like religion. No one isn't necessarily enforcing that. It's something that you believe in. And preferences, if we have a sort of mental accounting of this, Preferences as well do not require that there be arbiters, but norms require that there be arbiters. And so with respect to the social norms today, you talk about how in the earlier periods, there were these strong social norms against women pursuing careers and strong social norms encouraging them to raise families. Now it seems like the social norms are, there's pressure to do both, right? If you don't spend enough time with your kids, then you're judged negatively. If you don't really pursue a, a career you're judged negatively. And, and some of it depends upon the, the community in which you live. And more and more, we sort on the basis of that. I mean, we sort in terms of where we live, the church, the temple we go to, the schools we send our children to. All of these are ways in which we sort. And it's my sense that we are sorting more and more on the basis of whether uh, you as a family want there to be more specialization or you don't. And it's an area that I would love to pick up in terms of research. But one hears about this quite a lot. A woman will say, I'm sick of going to the playground with my kids and only see nannies. I have moved to a community in which I go to the playground and I'm with other parents. They're mainly women, not always, but there are other parents. And that's a very, very different community. Some people will say something similar about the church they go to. I'm sick of going to this church because people believe in X, Y, Z. And so we sort on those bases. Well, I'm, I'm most familiar with the MBA students that I spend most of my time teaching. And, and I think they feel like they're under tremendous pressure and they encounter a lot of frustration because I think they, you know, they do w- want to have it all. And they've been told that it's within the realm of possibility. Do you think we do a good enough job of kind of coaching people on the trade-offs that they will face? You talk about over time that, that there were some maybe lapses into some gaps between, you know, expectations and around what was possible and what was actually possible. Do we encourage people perhaps to be overly optimistic about being able to overcome a lot of these trade-offs? Well, I'm a very optimistic person myself, but I think that we can give people the information that we have 
we cannot tell them what to do, of course. That, that isn't what I do. But we also, as I said before, we're very bad about predicting certain things about the future in terms of social relations. Well, what I found most interesting in the book was your discussion of how labor is changing. And you pointed to the veterinarians, right? And how veterinarians have been through this dramatic transformation in the way in which they do work, which has made it very attractive for women. And if you go back 50 years ago, most veterinarians were male. And now majority of the new veterinarians are female. And I think we're seeing this in a number of professions. When I was a kid, uh, we had a pediatrician who was pretty much on call 24 hours a day. And if something happened and, you know, I cut myself, my mom would call the pediatrician and he'd rush on down and take care of me. And this guy actually went on to run a children's hospital later in life. That would never see that now, right? You just go down and, and whoever happens to be on call will take care of you. And so first of all, I want, I want to, why that's happened. It seems to have happened for reasons that have nothing to do with demand for equality. And why don't more professions move in this direction? I think it did have to do it. In that case, I think it did. Pediatricians are doctors who work with children. Most of them have children. Chances are, if they love someone else's child, they probably love their own children even more. And so, in fact, the shift to group practices for pediatricians did come somewhat from within. I mean, it's hard to prove that, but it, it probably came from within that profession. And it became pretty clear that, that it would be a profession that would gain enormously from having a group practice. And because if you're brought to a pediatrician whom you've never met as a child, you might not be happy. And so having group practices was good for everyone. I was going to say good for the goose and good for the gander. It was good for the, 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 everyone involved. Well, with respect to veterinarians, I mean, I think you said that a lot of it had to do with you know, shift to corporate ownership and... That's much later or earlier. It, it actually had to do with the fact that veterinarians got together themselves and had a referral business. So there are 10 veterinarians in a wide area and someone's going to be called at two in the morning. And so they would get together in some area that people could commute across and they would say, well, this week, this person is the referral vet. Well, that quickly turned into referral hospitals. That's what they were called. We have one in the Boston area called a referral hospital. It's no longer a referral hospital. And it's now uh, owned by some large corporation. But it, what evolved over time to the benefit of people like me who have a, a dog and others who have cats and other types of pets. What evolved was regional hospitals and regional veterinary hospitals rather than just referral hospitals. So today, if, if anything happens to my dog, I can bring the dog to a regional hospital. In addition, what has opened up are urgent care units for, for pets. So we have seen for animals, uh, something similar that we see for, um, for we humans. After all, we're animals too. 
But I mean, if you're trying to attract a, a wider pool of employees, then it would make sense for you as an employer to create more flexible work, right? And to redesign the work so that, you know, you didn't need someone to be working these crazy hours. Yeah. It took a while to do that is something that we economists should look into in terms of, you know, what the scale has to be for that. But think about obstetricians and anesthesiologists. These are two professions which have always had group practices. And I shouldn't say always, because someone's going to say, well, there were times when they didn't. But it's certainly then an obstetrician. If you're pregnant and you're seeing your obstetrician to deliver your baby, maybe at that precise moment, there's someone else who's going to have a baby. And maybe it's going to be a very difficult delivery and take some time. Well, you better have a backup option there. And the backup option is to have a practice of three, four, five obstetricians. And you see them, and therefore you're comfortable with them. There may be one you're hoping, hoping, hoping is going to be the person who delivers your baby. Take anesthesiology, for example. When you want to have an operation or have to have an operation, uh, you deal with a surgeon. Now, if you had to deal with, but the person who's keeping you alive is the anesthesiologist. If you had to do the following, make a date with the surgeon, make a date with the anesthesiologist as well, you're instantly into a problem. You're not going to do it. So instead, your surgeon uh, and that hospital has a group practice of anesthesiologists and maybe the surgeon likes one or two of them better, but they just pick from that. And seven minutes before you go under, you meet your anesthesiologist. So for these professions like academia, like law, like consulting, right? The, many of which are up and out where you have to really, really devote a lot of time and energy and work in your childbearing years to succeed, right? I mean, labor economists have explanations for why these workplaces operate like that, but is some of it just custom, right? I mean, when I think about like residencies for doctors, it's hard to kind of figure out why that you actually need to have residencies in order that have 72 hour stretches of you know work time. Well, it's no longer that. Yeah. So are these practices are archaic? Can we come up with, with better ways of... Some, some part of it may be archaic and, and there's a certain amount of experimentation. Some experimentation is limited by some various things that you referred to before, which, which would be impediments. And, and when there are impediments, we have to think, well, who's going to gain from these impediments? These look like supply restrictions rather than restrictions that are benefiting the client population. It's not clear when you see something like these restrictions that exist for a long period that they, as you pointed out, that they are necessary. And, and we do see certain changes in certain places. For example, we've seen a, a very large increase in non-tenured faculty in adjuncts and instructors. And because is it necessary for every person who teaches, such as yourself, to be doing, to actively be doing research at the same time? 
And the answer is it couldn't possibly be. Okay. Well, I mean, is there a way to maybe particularly in academia, right? I mean, academia seems brutal in, in many ways, right? Where you're, you know, you're investing in maximum productivity in your twenties and thirties. Are there ways that we could just push that off to some degree? I think within academia, we've We've introduced paternity leave. We've introduced pausing the tenure clock and so forth. But it seems like even if you pause the tenure clock and introduce maternity and paternity leaves, you haven't really kind of leveled the playing field. Oh, oh we've done worse. Oh, it, it it goes in the in the wrong direction often. I point out in the book that over the last 30, 40 years, we've increased the length of time that it takes for an individual, let's say in academia, to get their PhD and then to get tenure. And so it means that, you know, if we think about the biological clock and the tenure clock, they are not just now ticking at the same time, but in fact, the tenure clock is ticking after the biological clock is ticking more slowly. It's, it's so what we've done is we, have PhD programs that are now much too long. No, forget about residencies. PhD programs are too long. And we precede them with an advantage given to people who have masters, an advantage given to people who take pre-docs. We also have postdocs. We have lots and lots of ways in which we're extending the period of time until you are up for tenure. And I think it's to the incredible detriment of women, not, not, not to their benefit. Well, how can we fix that? I mean, I, I remember I was at a faculty meeting a couple of years ago and the subject of, you know, the gender composition of the faculty came up, right? And it's mainly a lot of economists, right? And so there was clearly a, a disparity there. And when the topic started, when we started talking about kind of how to address this, I think everyone defaulted to the subconscious bias and said, oh, we just have to overcome our bias. And without, they didn't seem to, there's no evidence that was what was driving it. And, but no one wanted to talk about differences in what people want from their workplace or how we could change, how change the work and change the way in which we reward people. Those things seem to be off the table. Do people not want to look to those problems because they're so intractable? It, it requires coordination and, and the antitrust division will be on our backs. So I'm not certain, I'm certainly not clear or certain on why we have gotten into this, this equilibrium, but I decry it. And it's an equilibrium in which uh, we as departments, Stanford, Berkeley, Harvard, Princeton, MIT, you name it, will admit students. So we get, let's say, 800 applications. So, so this is also an international phenomenon. We now get applications from the very, very top individual in every country in the world. Okay. And these are phenomenal, phenomenal brains. So for them to figure out how to get in enhance the probability of getting into one of these top programs, they then have an incentive to go out, to pay money to the LSE, get a master's in economics, come back, 
be a pre-doc for, you know, Raj Chetty and, and then have the ability to get letters, which are very important. So all of this then adds to the age of the person in which they start. This is like a rat race equilibrium. Bad, bad. Okay. And then these people who have all of this training under their belt, they are brilliant when they enter. Still takes six years to get their PhD. There's something the matter. And of course, if they took a couple years off, then they couldn't sort of resume where they left off, right? Because then they would have fallen behind. Well, when, when are they taking the years off? So they enter, they start the program, and then they take some time off. That's where I, I have some students, one of whom is pregnant with her third child, who did that. She didn't take time off. She, she just had these kids. And in fact, I have no two people at that. <laughs> and, you know, uh, are these super people? Probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, you do talk about some consulting firms that have, have looked into this. And, and I've worked with a lot of HR people. And the HR people are all worried about the leaky pipeline that you talk about, right? Where the number of applicants for the senior positions that are female just keep getting smaller and smaller as you go higher and higher. And it's primarily because of the demands of the job. But in order to fix that, it really requires a, a concerted effort on the part of the employer. You talk about there being these principal agency problems, right? How can, say, a consulting firm or a bank change the workplace environment? Can they do that without sacrificing their place on the leaderboard, a totem pole, when they're competing against the other banks? Two things. Number one, it's sort of interesting that we talk about a leaky pipeline, when in fact, it's a better way of thinking about the pipeline. It's not leaking. It's that it's been made so convoluted. It has twists and turns that it's, it's impeding. It's not as if women are leaking out. They're just being impeded from, from going forward. Whether or not there are ways of solving this within firms, I can certainly come up with lots of ways to solve it. But you know, how, how do we do that? Well, as I've said many times and said in the book, all you need is one good substitute. And remember, that was the same thing for the pediatrician. It was the same thing for the veterinarian. It was the same thing for the personal banker. So if you have one good substitute, if you have a job that is somewhat greedy and you need the time, for your family, you turn to your doppelganger and you say, you know everything about what I'm doing, just step into the room. Okay, so that's, that's one possibility. Another thing that happened during the pandemic is that it used to be that you had to shake the hand of, of the person that you were doing the M&A with, even if the person was in Tokyo. You had to be there at the contract signing in Geneva, in Zurich. You no longer have to do that. We discovered to our amazement that we could do things a different way. So if you no longer have to fly to Tokyo or Zurich every other weekend, 
Well, then women who were faced not with the leaky pipeline, but with the convoluted pipeline can say, hey, look, I can do that job. I can, I, I'm smart. I am capable. I don't have to bow out because I'm not the one who can go to Tokyo every other weekend. So are we going to see a change in the future? I really hope so. Well, one of the things that you point out in the book is that parents, including mothers, spend more time with their children now than they did in the past. And I'm always kind of stunned by this, right? Because one would think that we would be spending less time, right? Because people have, you know, fewer kids and, um, you know, that you can, you can outsource so much, particularly the wealthier you are, right? People talk about the lack of availability of childcare, but you know, when you're fairly wealthy, childcare is more affordable than when you're less wealthy. So why aren't people spending, particularly mothers who have these career options, why are they choosing to spend more time with their children rather than less? Well, the question is, what are they giving up? And so we have to sort of go back to the data that we have the American Time Use Survey. But many of these changes precede that, so we have to go back into the historical work. Some of this comes from uh, a well-known and important piece by Valerie and Gary Ramey called The Rugrat Race. And they have an answer for why it's going on, and it has to do with the same rat race equilibrium to which I referred to before. This is just another part of it. I don't know whether that's a good answer because we also know from a host of OECD countries that in these countries as well, the more educated parents spend more time with their kids than less educated parents. And that has changed, increased over time as education has increased for the parents. So part of it is that we really want to know what parents who are spending more time with their kids were doing before. And it may be that they were going to sports events before, and now they're going to their kids' sports events? I don't know. Well, I guess last question I can wrap up is the, the bigger question, which is we talk about gender equity as if it's unquestioningly a good thing in the way we've defined it. But couldn't we argue that the women who have decided to kind of check out of this rat race and avoid these greedy jobs that seems pretty wise. <laughs> that seems like they figured it out. The men just haven't wisened up that maybe they should be following in the footsteps of these women and avoiding this rat race. Why do we see this as necessarily a problem rather than just a difference in lifestyle choice or preference? Well, the press and commentators may see it as a problem, and many people may see it as a problem. I would emphasize that I want to relax constraints. We talked about constraints and preferences. We talked about preferences and norms and beliefs. So my goal is to make certain that people are unconstrained, unconstrained by the various constraints that we think of as economists in terms of the budget constraint or in terms of other types of educational constraints. There are a host of different ways in which people can be constrained. And I also much rather that people aren't constrained by 
norms that no longer have a function. Norms arise because they have a function, and then they're often kept in place and enforced by generations of people. We often call our parents and our grandparents, and it would be very, very good if these norms changed as fast as society is changing. So I think that is my goal. And if that goal then leads more women to have careers and to have equitable relationships with whomever they are sharing their life with, then that would be a very good thing. Claudia, thanks so much for joining me and discussing this. This is really, really wonderful book. It's called Career and Family. And there's just so much fascinating information in here. And you know, you plow through all these databases, which illustrate so much about our lives, our careers, and our family life. Thanks for joining me. And thank you very, very much for a great entertaining time with you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.